and because of your sin. You know, a little over 2,000 years ago, this event, it went pretty much unnoticed by the vast majority of people in the world. To the Romans, he was just another convicted man who needed to be executed. But this death, the death of this man named Jesus, it was even more torturous because they humiliated him and they beat him. And let me tell you, crucifixion is not a fun thing. It was and is the worst way to die, the worst way ever invented by mankind. But it doesn't stop there. You see, he rose again on the third day, proclaiming himself the victor over death, hell, and the grave. Our text today comes mostly from Matthew chapter 27. 2735, and it'll be on the screen. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and the elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. And we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. And now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jumping to Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled it back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. 
And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the reason we're here. Lord, you, you allowed yourself to be crucified on my behalf, on our behalf. Jesus, there is no words that can truly represent what you've done. We thank you, Lord, for it. But that is, just saying thank you is nowhere near enough. Lord Jesus, we love you. We ask that you would speak to our hearts today. Place in us that, that joy of our salvation, that newness, that we would leave this place, Lord. Not only giving thanks to you, but sharing your your gospel, your good news. In Jesus, we love you. Amen. Why do we celebrate Jesus? Well, we're not perfect, and because of this, we need a Savior. It sounds simple, and it is. So what happened? What happened? We've seen it alluded to throughout all of service, his crucifixion, his resurrection, but what happened? Now, there's a huge amount of detail about what happened. However, I'm going to focus on only a few of those things today. Jesus, number one, you've got to know, is the God-man. He is 100% God and 100% man. People misunderstood his life and his purpose here on earth. His purpose was to bring peace between God and man. Not between men and men, at least not yet. That comes when he comes back. In the millennial reign. Because Jesus proclaimed himself to be equal with God the Father. He really ticked off the religious leaders of the day. As a friend of mine used to say, honked off. Apparently that comes from Indiana, which is where they're from. <laughs> Not that I'm against that, I'm just saying. I think it's a great word. They wanted him dead. Did you know that? They wanted him dead. He didn't do anything deserving of death, but they wanted him dead. But no, they didn't do it themselves because the common people saw him as a popular leader, perhaps even a prophet. He raised the dead, he healed the sick, and he cast out demons with a word which had never been done before. But he didn't have such nice things to say about his hypocritical leaders. Here's an example. 
Just a few chapters earlier in Matthew 23, starting at verse 27, it'll be on the screen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of, the, of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes, Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. They hated him. They hated him so much that they got the the Romans to do their dirty work for them. They hated what he said. They knew he would suffer greatly. They didn't care. They wanted him gone. You see, he upset their religious order. He was a radical to them. You know, I did some research about the physical pain of crucifixion. And if I were to tell you all of it, I don't think you could stand it. But I'm going to glean some things that I'd like to share. A lot of this comes from an article at Azusa Pacific University on the subject. And they write, It is important to understand from the beginning that Jesus would have been in excellent physical condition. As a carpenter by trade, he participated in physical labor. In addition, he spent much of his ministry traveling on foot across the countryside. His stamina and strength were most likely very well developed. He was a fit man, guys. Now, with that in mind, it's clear just how much he suffered. If this torture could break a man in this such good shape, it must have been a horrific experience. Now, place yourselves here in this scene. After the Passover celebration, Jesus takes his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Now, during his prayer, he's got a lot of anxiety. He's anxious about the events to come. He knows what's happening. And because of it, Jesus sweats drops of blood. Now, there's been many people who say that's not possible. But yes, it is. There is a rare medical condition called hemohydrosis. Don't ask me to say that again during which the blood vessels that feed your sweat glands literally break down and blood is released from the vessels mixed with sweat and the body sweats drops of blood. Now it's brought on by high anxiety and also makes the skin on a person's body extremely tender, which I did not know. Pilate orders Jesus to be flogged, which was required by Roman law before crucifixion traditionally. The accused stood naked. The flogging covered the area from the shoulders down to the upper legs. 
The whip consisted of several strips of leather. In the middle of the strips were metal balls that hit the skin, causing deep bruising. Now, in addition to this, sheep bone was attached to the tips of each strip. And when the bone makes contact with Jesus' skin, it literally tears. This flogging leaves the skin on Jesus in ribbons. He's lost a great volume of blood. And keep in mind, his skin was already tender to begin with. Roman soldiers place a crown of thorns, and we're not talking these little briars out here in the woods. We're talking big thorns. They placed a crown of thorns on his head and a robe on his back. Now the robe would help with the blood clot. It would prevent Jesus from losing any more blood. And then they hit Jesus in the head. Now he had this uh, crown of thorns on his head. And as they'd hit him, it'd push into the skin. That would cause him to bleed profusely. Excuse me. They mock him. They belittle him. They spit on him. And then, to add insult and more injury, they rip the robe off of his back, opening those wounds. Now, his condition is extremely bad at this point. Because of this, he's unable to carry the cross, and we know Simon of Cyrene carries it for him. The accused needed to be nailed to the crossbeam while laying down. Now, more than likely, he was thrown to the ground onto his back where his wounds would have opened again, grinding in dirt, causing bleeding. Now, these nails were literally seven to nine inches long. They were more like a railroad spike that we would see today, except skinnier. As they nailed him, it would sever the major nerve to the hand upon impact. Now this didn't just happen and then the pain, you'd get used to it. Because of that nerve, it caused agonizing pain for the remainder of his life. Jesus' feet were nailed as well. The knees would have been about 90 degrees And the weight of his body would push down on the nails, and the ankles would support the weight. Because of this, his body pulls down on his diaphragm. And the air moves into his lungs, only he can't exhale. He has to literally push up to exhale and back down, which would cause more pain. It would also make it very hard to speak. And I find interesting that one of the final things he says is, forgive them for they know not what they do. All of this would lead to a slow form of suffocation. Now because of that, it would cause the heart to beat faster, which would cause buildup of fluid around his heart. The lack of oxygen also damages the heart. And more than likely, Jesus died of a heart attack. Now, when the soldiers came to Jesus, he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. Instead, to make sure he was dead, the soldiers took a spear, and they pierced his side to assure that he was dead. In doing this, it's reported in John that blood and water 
flowed, referring to that watery fluid that had surrounded the heart and lungs. And while things about his murder, the depths of Christ's pain emphasize the true extent of the love he has for creation, for us. He went through that for you. Learning about the crucifixion, pondering on what, what he went through. This is a constant reminder of the magnificent demonstration of God's love for humanity. And you know what? This was always God's plan from the beginning. Always. Jesus was and is the perfect sacrifice to satisfy God's justice and his wrath on sin and yet bring us into a right relationship with him. He lived a sinless life, and through his blood shed on the cross of Calvary, we have peace with God, or we can. He died on a Roman cross for your sin and my sin, but he didn't stay there. You see, he rose from the dead, and he declared victory over death. He left and said he would return to judge the living and the dead, and then he will rule and reign forever. Revelation 21.1 on the screen. This is what happens because of Jesus' sacrifice and subsequent resurrection. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That ought to give you hope. That ought to give you hope. Because in the end, Jesus won. Jesus wins. Why was this all necessary? You're saying, that's great. He died, he rose again for me. But what does that mean? I don't know. Genesis 3.1. Now we went to the end of the Bible. Now we're going to go all the way to the beginning. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beasts of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. 
Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. That's the beginning of sin. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Why was this necessary? Because you and I are born in sin. What is sin? That's a good question. In its simpler form, simplest as you can get, it means to miss the mark. Literally. It carries with it the image of a marksman. You think of like Robin Hood. You know, he's got the bow and the arrow. A marksman. And if that bow and arrow, the guy, the marksman holding it, misses his shot, it's said that he has sinned or he has missed the mark. How were we born in sin then? Well, the scripture says, because Adam and Eve had one rule. And they broke that rule. And because of their sin, they're missing the mark. They weren't perfect. They missed what God had said. Sin entered the world. And because we are their descendants, we are born into sin. Folks, the world decays day by day because of sin being in the world. It decays. Because one of God's attributes is justice. Someone has to pay for our sin against God. Someone's got to do it if we're to be redeemed. You may say, so what's the big deal? Why does God require this? Think of it like this. Sin is about who it is against. Think of this. Sin is about who is it against. For example... If I slap someone in the face like Al, which I would never do, I have sinned against them, okay? We may even get into a physical fist fight. After that, it's pretty much over. We each go on our way and move on, take care of my bloody nose, whatever, all right? Now let's say I slap the president of the United States. What will happen then? I don't care who it is at the time. Let's say that happens. Well, this is what would happen to me. Secret service is going to descend on me, and I'll find myself on the ground hurting and handcuffed. I'll then be arrested, and you'll probably never see me again. I'll just disappear. Now think of it this way. God is much greater than the president. Do you see what happened? 
when God says don't do a thing and you do it, it's a major, major thing. The problem is that you have to have a perfect sacrifice. Why? Because God is perfect. He said, I am holy. Now you be holy. We, however, are not perfect. So guess what? We can never offer that perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Think of it this way. You have a mortgage, and most of us know what that means. You're broke, you're about to lose your house, you can't pay it, and you realize that due to an illness, you're never going to be able to pay it. However, someone goes down to the bank and pays that debt that they didn't know. It was your debt, but they paid for it. That's what Jesus did. It was your debt, but he paid for it. That ought to humble us. So what now? What do you do with this information? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Listen, the truth is, you and I are born into sin. We have sinned. I have sinned, you have sinned, the Pope has sinned. Everybody has sinned. And it separates us from God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you know, there's a hope, and his hope came to earth. He was born in a manger, and he died to take our place, to take care of our debt. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever told a lie? Oh, don't confess it to me. Confess it to God. Have you ever told a lie? You ever gotten angry, so angry that you were wrathful? Mm-hmm. Said something you wish you could take back. You know, according to the Bible... You're a sinner in God's eyes then. Because you've rebelled against His law. Because you've rebelled against His law. He did say, you shall not lie after all, didn't He? You are in need of punishment then. And the wages of your sin, according to the Scripture, is death. But we know that God has given us eternal life. What will you do about it? Do you want to receive that free gift of Jesus to be saved? It's free. He offers it. You got to take it. It isn't easy, though. It requires to give up your entire being, who you are, to him. He said, count the cost. 
It requires calling on His name and yielding all that you are to all that He is. And let's be honest though, is all that you are really worth keeping? You're in sin if you don't know Him. Is your life really so great that you don't need someone to take care of your sin debt? The answer is a resounding no, it's not. So how does one receive the gift of Jesus? Real simple. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's Romans 10, 13. If you call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Is that you today? Do you need to call upon the name of the Lord? As the ladies come.